Most costume designers have not been allowed or invited into that world yet, and I think it's a whole new way of making a movie that we're going to increase our skill base as a group, and that's really important. And I'm one of the pioneers of this. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Oscar-winning costume designer Deborah L. Scott. If you've ever been to the movies, you've seen Deborah L. Scott's work. She's been at it for 40 years now and has led the design of costumes on E.T., Back to the Future, Heat, Minority Report, Who's That Girl? Remember that one? Starring Madonna. Titanic, for which she won an Oscar. Avatar, and most recently, the sequel, Avatar The Way of Water. If you've seen that one, you were undoubtedly wowed by her skill and artistry in creating the material reality of Pandora. And her process is fascinating. She actually invented a new costume paradigm, hand-making finely crafted physical costumes and props that were then digitized for film. Over the course of five years, she and her team hand-weaved, stitched, beaded, embroidered, and braided using a craft-based sampling-led design process and then took these physical artifacts and blended them with the technological innovations of her collaborators in visual effects. And in a rare scenario for a costume designer, she stayed on the project all the way through post-production, lending her vision and expertise to the digital representations of the costumes to help bring the Navi of Pandora to life. Just recently in 2023, she's been honored with a Career Achievement Award from the Costume Designers Guild. With 40 years in show business, she's racked up a ton of stories, forged a formidable path, and is proudly holding doors open for those on the way up. It's a very hands-on life with deep character and beautiful details. Here's Deborah. My name is Deborah L. Scott. I live in Los Angeles, California. I am a costume designer for films because I love making movies. That is amazing. And we haven't had too many costume designers on the show. So I am very excited to hear all about your creative journey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there.
I want to start, as I usually do, with the very beginning, your childhood. So can you tell me where you grew up and what your family dynamic was like and the types of things that fascinated you as a kid? I grew up in a family of four children. My father was a production manager for a building products company. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom for most of her time. We moved around a lot. I was born in Montana, which was a little obscure, but we moved constantly. Every two or three years, my father would get sent to a new place. And I think that was pretty elemental in my childhood in terms of being able to see the world from a different perspective. We lived all over the country, only in the U.S., but I mean, New York, the South, New Orleans, Indiana, Chicago, so that I think it gave me a really broad perspective on sort of people watching, which was great. And I think it prepared me very well for the film business. As most people know, is pretty much a bunch of vagabonds. We, we go on location a lot. We pick up and move. And I think that really helped me feel comfortable in that setting as well. My mom taught me to sew when I was very little. I was probably sewing by the time I was in third grade. I appreciated the hands-on of making things. She also was pretty responsible for me having my first little camera when I was quite quite young and a, a box of paints. She was an artistic person, but I don't think that she was really allowed to express it very much. But she must have seen something because you know those were kind of the gifts that she gave me. She never made a big deal out of it at all. My dad was very much a lover of movies. So whenever we could, we would go as a family to the cinema, to a drive-in, watch on television, obviously. But those really elemental, informative years of sitting in a movie theater and being taken away by a story was pretty foundational for me. Sounds like it. I'm kind of curious, when you learned how to sew, were you focusing on garment construction or what were you sewing? Well, I tried to sew my own clothes. <laughs> so I think I think I was very garment focused. My mother would make a lot of our clothes as children. I did dolls. That was a big deal. And making puppets. Oh, characters. Yes. From the get. Exactly. Exactly. And so I still have one of my very early puppets and it brings back an amazing memory in that way. That's amazing. And then of all the places you lived, does one stand out in your childhood as being more magical than the others? I think they were so different that nothing really was more important or less important than any other place. When we lived in Indiana, my, my poor mother was stuck in a motel. I was very, very young. I was probably three or four then. At that point, I had two siblings, but she, we were stuck living in a motel for six months. So <laughs> it, was wow. pretty, it was pretty, I'm sure she must have like wanted to absolutely tear her hair out, but we became very close with the couple that owned the motel. And it was the quintessential kind of fifties roadside kind of place. So there was a lot of character to that for me. That's interesting to me because you being there for six months and the hotel owners, you would be the only people who were not itinerant for that period of time. <laughs> yeah. I have absolutely no memory of anyone else except the two, Mary and Leo, the people that ran the place. My recollection is she wore a little uniform because it was still the days where something like that would be appropriate. Right. And did you get to see kind of behind the scenes also, like how a motel was run? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I just remember mostly trying to be outdoors because I'm sure my poor mom. You know, oh, like, right, oh right. God. A motel room is not where you like <laughs> like to hunker down and read books for all afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Siblings and I were very close in age and we were too young to be in school at that point. I love that story because for some reason it feels like it informs your ability to adapt and make friends with these people people who sort of come in and out of your life and also may have given you a little window into the operations behind like the facade, the story of what is, and that's where you operate now. Exactly. Tell me about your teenage years. Were you still moving around as a teenager? When I was a young teen, like junior high school, we lived in Orange County for a while. So that was very alluring because I could see the fireworks for Disneyland every night. 
So right. that was very, it was like, oh my gosh, a whole fake, wonderful world. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> that was, that was pretty wonderful. And then I spent my high school years in Vegas, which. Oh my again, gosh, the fakery again. The, the, yeah. fake, the fakery of that place and the bizarreness of that place. And this was in the, the beginning of the seventies, the strip was such a different place than the people that actually worked and lived there. It was a very Mormon place. So it was just this incredible juxtaposition of these incredibly two different worlds, which I also think was very informative, like what's real, what's not real. Very weird, right? Oh, (laughs) man. And how to construct the story so that it, even if people understand that it's not real, it's still worthy of escapism and being immersed in for its entertainment value. Yeah, exactly. And I think it kind of drew these interesting lines in society, which in terms of creating characters for movies, you that's what one of the main things that you do. You put a person in a place in time. They might be next to another person, but they may come from completely separate places. You're painting a picture or putting together a collage of sorts that seems to be leading directly to the profession you found it's funny because I've never quite talked about it in this way. Like the way you're kind of linking it together for me is really amazing and helpful. It's very insightful because you, I think you, we don't realize when we're children, the things that are going to sort of take hold in us and propel us on some kind of path. Working in the film business and even the theater was a complete, like, are you out of your mind concept? Yeah. What, it wouldn't have been a, a recipe that was offered to you at the time. It's like not a stable or easy industry to enter. So it's not like go to college and get a job in finance or medicine or education. Yeah, that, I think that was very interesting. And I think I, one of my very formative moments was when I was in high school and we were supposed to take t- a typing class. And I was absolutely defiant. I said, I will not learn that job because I knew, you know, it was always like women could be secretaries in the sixties. That was a big deal. Yeah. You know? And I was like, absolutely no, I still am a terrible typer, which I regret, but it was a (laughs) moment somehow. And I didn't know where I was going to go with that, but I knew I wasn't going to go there. So sometimes it's what you reject too. Yeah. Where does the defiance come from? Oh, being one of four children and I was the quiet sort of middle and I had to, I had to really chart my own way, like make my own rules, be independent, which very grateful for that as much as you always feel like maybe you were overlooked as a middle one, but it really gave me that a little bit of confidence in myself to make my decisions. I went to college when I was 16. So what I I had, I I started school really early. I'm sure again, my mother wanted more children out of the house, but they allowed me to start school. And so I was always on the younger side. And when I was 16, I convinced my parents that I was going to turn 17 right after school started. I have a late birthday and I convinced them that I could get an apartment (laughs) and go to, go to school. And they somehow decided to let me do that which I'm still amazed at. They must have just been like, okay, whatever, go. That's very self-sufficient and independent of you. Why were you so anxious to get moving on your adult life and leave childhood behind? I really do think it was just that wonder of what the world was going to hold for me. And I I knew that at that point, I knew that I was going to study theater. So I was already very invested in kind of this magical made up world of some sort it was pretty easy. It was a comfortable place to land in a theater department. This is at Cal State Northridge? Yeah. I went there for for three years before I dropped out and went back to Vegas and worked on the strip as a costume person. So the twist and turns, but I think it, it was that thing of knowing that I wanted to somehow be involved in this kind of world. And at the time, I didn't really understand that movies were a thing. Like you could actually... I'm not sure when it dawned on me that you could actually work in the same way. But as I pursued my theatrical career, schooling really taught me a lot. And it's one of the things that I like to do when I have time is to teach other students. Because to me as a costume designer, my roots were in the theater. And I think the 
the importance of that was that it wasn't fashion, that you had to learn about character. You had to learn the skills. You had to build sets. You had to make costumes. You had to do hair. You had to do it all. Everything about it is so intentional because it has to embody the character. It has to give you information about the character. It has to move with the character. And so it's not just dressing the person. It's actually informing the story in a way. 100%. I mean, that's the main purpose of what we do. We give a visual language to the character for an audience to see. And I think it's very informative. That's one of the reasons why we're quite often very close with actors or actresses because of that, that you're working together, ideally, to present a person. On that character development. Okay, so you said something that I have to follow up on, which is that you dropped out of school and went to Vegas. I love the way that sounds. It wasn't, a great, it wasn't a great idea, but it worked out. Okay. <laughs> and what, and Let's unpack reasons, that a little. <laughs> so I went back to Vegas. My parents had since moved on from there, so I didn't really even have a home. It wasn't like I went home. But I had an opportunity to work at the MGM when they were really just starting in my opinion, which I could, this could be completely false information, but big shows, like big costume shows. And Bob Mackey had designed, it was called Hooray for Hall. It was based on Hollywood. So all these things kind of come together. Your words like colliding. Yeah. I know, it's, it's so weird. So I got a job very easily working on, on that show. And I think it was because of my theatrical experience. You know, I could have been probably at the time 21, something like that, barely legal to be in a gambling establishment. But the, my coworkers were mostly older women, which was interesting to watch them work. And it was very skill-based. You had to know how to repair fishnet stockings, how to bead, how to... So we would do costume repair. Oh, what fantastic experience. Yeah, Yeah. it was amazing. And because I was young and agile, I also got stage cues because I came for the theater. So I would run up and help the showgirls take off headdresses, put, you know, do all these quick changes, which was absolutely a total blast. And I did that for about six months and it was two shows a night three shows on the weekends. And after I really burnt out pretty quickly, I'm like, okay, this is not going anywhere. This is never going to go anywhere. It's going to be what it is. I'd kind of reached the, what I would call the height of my Vegas career, <laughs> unless I, <laughs> unless I had been lucky enough to go on to design something, but I didn't. But the other side part of that was it was the MGM hotel at the time. They had a theater in the basement where all day and all night they ran old MGM classics. I would often escape after work before, you know, and go down to the basement and literally nobody would be in there. So it was like this magical world where I could sit and watch Grand Hotel or, you know, whatever movie came up. Yeah. Wow. And you're already at home living in a hotel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it was really fun. And then I said, you know, I got to, I got to get out of here. I got to go, I got to figure out what I'm going to do now. But that does sound like a, a nice, dense, short patch of extreme experience that, that you were able to like take with you. It was really fun. And I decided, okay, you're going to have to go back to school. Theoretically, in the film business, you don't have to go to school at all. You don't have to have a degree. But I think at that time, I still thought I was going to work in the theater. So I started at Cal State Long Beach, which had a much more professionally oriented theater program. When you came out of there, you're going to have a portfolio. You're going to have a worked on a certain amount of shows, really know how to do it, the whole shebang. And I used that portfolio a lot during my early years of trying to get work. So it was very, very worth it. And I would say for students, don't discount that it can actually be that valuable. I actually had a conversation with a student today about her degree project, and I was just advising her that, you know, you think it's this one moment in time, but it's actually a reservoir that you keep pulling from throughout your career. So make it as personal and as profound as you possibly can. So that reservoir is deep. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's key. So it sounds like Long Beach was a really good choice. I like that we've got Vegas as a maybe not not a great choice. Sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) Long Beach was a great choice. And then with a portfolio that you are now happy with and are showing off, how did you start to make your way professionally? I started during the summers. I think I was at Long Beach for a year and a half because I had a lot to catch up on. But I would do regional Shakespeare theater. 
also there's a conservatory in Santa Maria called the Pacific Conservatory of the Arts. I would go in costume. I didn't design at the time, but I did work in the costume department. I made a lot of things. I got assigned to things what I would call special projects, like painting fabric, being a hair and makeup designer. So again, it kind of broadened my world and my skill base. Now, was I wonderful at anything? Probably not, but I could have chosen many things and followed that path. But I think it was the groundwork for what I then decided to take with me, which is great. That makes a lot of sense because even if you're not great at being hair and makeup, you know what's involved. You know the the sort of tools of the trade and what the issues are. So when working with costumes, you can also collaborate with those who are doing hair and makeup on character. I'm a big fan of like dabbling in a lot of things so that you at least know enough to be able to work with the pros on it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's the same thing with constructing a garment. As a designer, you're building things a lot being able to share that language. Like, could I drape a ball gown? Sure, I could. Would it be great? No, it wouldn't. I grew to very much appreciate the people that made that their skill, their work. And you have that language that you understand what they're doing and how they're doing it. And you could even make suggestions like, well, let's try it this way or let's do this. So I think all of those things are incredibly important in dealing with your coworkers. Oh, I I 100% agree. Because you also have a lot more respect for their craft as well. 100%. And you know, you need them. You can tell when people are good at that and good at their work, good at makeup, good at wig making, good at making garments. It's amazing work. It really is. And it's a joy to collaborate because you can both like help elevate each other's work by working together. And it's best. 100%. That was one of the biggest things I think that I came back to very full on with Avatar The Way of Water. Just came completely full circle. Wow. Okay. Well, I definitely want to hear about that. Too much of a jump forward. (laughs) Yeah. Because we got 40 years of costuming to cover. 40 years later. 40 years later, (laughs) she said. So it sounds like there's a moment where you made an active switch from theater to film. Yeah, I did. Because I quickly knew that it was going to be difficult to really make a living doing that. It's a very underpaid, underserved community. And if you got to Broadway, maybe that's a different thing. So when I was at Northridge, I made friends with a lot of people there. And one of them was an actor, Charlie Martin Smith. I think one of the things he's very well known for is the Buddy Holly story. And he worked up and around in San Francisco. And he was on a movie called Never Quite Wolf in Alaska, in Canada. It was a very intimate, very small production in the wild directed by Carol Ballard, who had done Black Stallion. So he had them call me one day and say, can you come help us with the costumes? And I was just like, absolutely. And I think another thing for students is like when you get a, in fact, the person who called me, I didn't even know him. Your name was passed from somebody who did know you. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a minute for me to make the connection. I was kind of like, you could have just hung up on the person and thought you're a weirdo, but it was, you know, I think for students too, it's like you might have a glimmer of an opportunity and you got to take it. You got to jump in. You got to do it. Even if you felt completely underqualified, which I did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, 
has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, even his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Well, I've gotten myself into so many situations that I felt underqualified, but I figured it out. Absolutely. I figured out actually that I could do it, but I learned that on the job. Yeah, but that's what's important. It's not a, a job where you there's a, a leads to B leads to C. It's a big circle and sometimes you're going off on a diagonal and it's crazy. And I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll come. I had no idea where I was going. I knew it would be in the wilds, but I was completely unprepared. I remember... I had to leave very quickly. It was like, well, you got to come tomorrow or something like that, right? I got on the plane. It was a couple of puddle jumpers, like small planes to get to where we were. And I was like, oh my God, what am I getting myself into? And I arrived on an airstrip in Alaska. <laughs> the plane, I was the only passenger. The plane touches down. I get out and I'm like standing there in a blazer and a Laura Ashley blouse and holding my sewing machine. Like, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's like, how about a coat, girl? You know, it's like, how about some mittens? It was ridiculous. 
But I had my sewing machine, which did come in handy, but I felt so silly, you know, looking back on it. I wish I had a photograph of that moment because me too, but you painted a glorious picture. It's so vivid that I can see the blouse. I had a little beige blazer. I thought I was so professional and I was like, you are so out of your depth here. (laughs) It was very funny, but I, I did it. I went out on that job. I was the single solitary person in the, in the costume department. I helped with the makeup. And I also got to script supervise when the script supervisor was, I don't know where. So we did a lot of job sharing and we did a lot of time sitting in the wilderness waiting for the perfect light, the perfect situation, very small crew, very, very artistic director. But the question marks every day were enormous because we didn't really have a fully written script. Oh my gosh. So we'd wake up in the morning. Sometimes we'd be in a little tiny town and living in all these strange places or a small motel and get on the walkie talkie and it would be like, what's the weather? Okay, we're going to shoot this. Or we'd go out on a long ride and have, we we would backpack in and I'd put every single thing I could possibly think of that I might need in my backpack and just pray that you had the right thing because it was too far to come back. (laughs) (laughs) So it was trial by fire, like you were saying. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that is so important. And it was so meaningful and really self-affirming for me to know that I could do that. I could answer the questions. And you had to be ready for anything because the, the story was coming together kind of on the fly, according to nature. Luckily, there were only a few people in the cast, so you could handle it. You got to switch hats a lot and also got a very sort of deep and immersive lesson in filmmaking. Absolutely. So, wow, what a tremendous foundational experience. It was so wonderful. And I was very, very lucky that I started off really anti-Hollywood, quite frankly. (laughs) Do you consider that anti-Hollywood? Was it very indie? It was extremely indie. And it it was the, the director, it was so few people you know, and working in that way when a director would have in the days, you know, I think there were so many good movies made in the seventies and eighties. And sometimes because they, I think directors had a lot of, you know, it wasn't a machinery. There was no, you could be truly independent. No one was looking over your shoulder. There wasn't, even on that movie, there wasn't even such a thing as dailies because we were too far out in the, the wilds. So the story was told from a very singular vision which is what sometimes gets lost now. Yeah. So personally speaking, as you're doing this and trial by fire, you said it was self-affirming and I can see that, but are you enjoying it or are you like oh, 100%. also? Okay. So, so you're fun. like riding it like whitewater rafting. It's just an adventure. Oh, completely. I mean, it, you know, my biggest complaint was I literally froze. It was so cold some of the time. <laughs> that, you know, I, ha- I, I hated that. It was very difficult, but Other than that, it was meeting incredible people, being very intimate in terms of feeling like the storytelling that we're doing was everybody had a voice. Wow. So you were hooked from that experience. That was it. I was like, okay, what's next? I have no idea, (laughs) but it was a big, it was a big, like, this is what I'm going to do. You've been in the business now 40 plus years. And you've racked up an extensive portfolio of stellar projects. And just to name a few, Back to the Future, E.T., Heat, Minority Report, and Titanic, for which you won an Oscar. So over this amazing career, I'm wondering if you can kind of chart the course of the projects that, aside from recognition or commercial success, the ones that actually taught you the most about how to evolve your craft, how to work with yourself, or how to grow even your business and your relationships. Yeah, that's a good question because when you you realize how things are connected or not connected, and it's that, again, that thing of kind of rejecting the things that you don't want that you know aren't right for you. But the real start to my career after Never Cry Wolf was the opportunity to work on ET, which had its 40th anniversary, so we can start there. (laughs) (laughs) I was through a bunch of channels, got the call to come meet with Steven Spielberg, and he was just getting Amblin up and going at the time. He had, Kathy Kennedy was his producer, works with a lot of female producers. He's just a a wonderful, wonderful man. And I was really nervous. I I was still using my portfolio from college. (laughs) 
<laughs> and all I had to say about Never Cry Wolf was that I had some photos and that was about it. So I went in to meet him. We had a wonderful meeting. He had already done these, incre- you know, he'd done Jaws, he'd done Close Encounters, he'd done amazing, amazing films. Again, it was like, why am I here? What can I bring to this? And luckily for me, he chose me. We just started on that movie together, which was so foundational. That was a real movie, right? That was at a studio where the sets were built. Again, not a huge cast, but completely manageable for me. Very, very touchy-feely, if that's the right word, but very hands-on. And I had the absolute best time. The writer, Melissa Matheson, was we were all very close. So again, it was just an elevated version of what I had done before, which is getting together with a bunch of people who wanted to make a wonderful movie. This time we had Steven Spielberg at the helm. It was just talk about formative in terms of how a director is supposed to behave, be what he brought to the project, how he gathered the troops around him was amazing. It's so wonderful. You're like, how could it get better than this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the productions, as as I've witnessed just from living in LA and my corner of the entertainment business, the productions are intense, immersive. They're, it's really bursts of high concentrated productivity, which also means that the camaraderie is really intense because you're so deep in it and so focused on it for the time period that you're in production it's like being on an excursion or on an adventure at summer camp to the exclusion of the rest of the world frequently. Right. And so to be in an experience like that deep in it with a really capable and qualified leader who's not only good at what he does, but is also good at creating culture and helping all of that come together sounds like it would be really formative. But you said something that I need to go back to is as you were like wondering why you got the opportunity you said, well, what, what can I bring to the table? And what did you arrive at? What did you say to yourself about what it is you have to offer? I think it was the ability to just like hunker down with these very unique and characters, kind of fragile, all of them in a way. I began, the script was so beautifully written that it, that was the, the beginning of it. It's an incredibly well-written script. And the way it describes things, it was very lyrical, very character driven, not that many words. The movie doesn't have a tremendous amount of dialogue. Because I was also so young and I hadn't done that many projects, I really wasn't aware of what what does the film business look like beyond this? Like you said, you get into this very tiny world. And that's where I like to go. I like to be in a world that you create, that you just hunker down in. You're not letting outside influences come in too much. And I didn't really understand like how other costume designers worked. I'd never watched another costume designer. I'd never really been on another set. It was that learn as you go, get in touch with your feelings and your intuition. And I think that project was very, very intuitive for everyone. The actors, you know, Henry Thomas, my goodness, what an amazing little actor and an amazing kid. He was just a love. (laughs) Still blown away by that performance. Yeah. He's wonderful. And the movie, you know, it took off and people still cherish it today. And that's amazing. Like to have that as kind of the framework. I'm so lucky. Okay. So that does sound like a really important moment in your career. And now that you've recently completed Avatar, The Way of Water, which is the second in the film franchise that you've worked on, because you also worked on Avatar. And it sounds like it's a longer-term relationship with James Cameron because you also worked on Titanic. So I'd love to hear all about the process of designing for Avatar The Way of Water. I want to get deep into that because it's just rich and very, very multifaceted, really encompasses so much of what costume design can be. But even before we get there, I kind of want to cap off this career trajectory moment that we're on. And I'm wondering, an Oscar under your belt, a fabulous portfolio of films. How are you feeling now about the industry, where you are in it, and the creative agency and your future as being a professional woman? I think pretty good, obviously. You know, you think, okay, I accomplished this, but you're only as good as your last job. That's a lie they tell you in Hollywood, I feel like. (laughs) But it's kind of true. It's like you have to continue to 
prove yourself. You can't take anything for granted. You're working with new people all the time. That it's it's always the same process of kind of making sure that you jump in and do your best work and work really hard. And you have to do that. You must do that to be successful. I worked with a lot of different directors and took a lot of different paths around and always with a leap of faith that I could do that. You know, somehow I would do that and make it successful. When I did Legends of the Fall, it was another interesting different project, but that led me to Titanic. So one thing always leads to another somehow. And my relationship with Jim Cameron then stayed and we've reunited now a couple of times. So again, you're trying to always make sure that you do your best work and that you're good to work with and you're collaborative and that your director, especially, because I work with a lot of really high powered directors that they really believe that you can, as a costume designer, add to the story. What does that look like on a microscopic granular level? Does that mean that you have to be assertive and reject things in the same way that you rejected the typing class? Does it mean that you command respect and are able to be heard when you, when you have an idea that goes against the grain? I think that is a really rough road for a lot of people. And I do think costumes is normally very often a female part of the equation. The film business is notorious. <laughs> They're very, very male-oriented. It's just it's not a joke that as a female, as a, as a woman, as a young woman, that you are going to often be the only female in the room. It comes with a lot of baggage. It really, really does. So you have to remain steadfast. You're always skirting those lines. Like if you're a woman of a certain stature or a certain place, you're still always bouncing against those boundaries. Like, don't be too assertive. Right. It's a tightrope. Right. Don't let them walk all over you. How do you do that without offending someone? How do you do that without giving up your own sense of self and, and righteousness? It's very, very hard. That, I think, is the hardest part of the job, period. I used to get very upset with myself. If, if you got upset, you don't get upset. Don't cr- God forbid, don't cry. <laughs> I am a very emotional person and I can keep it in check when necessary, but I also do not apologize when I cry anymore. If something upsets me, I'm going to, I'm easily to cry just when something is, feels happy or sensitive. Me too. I mean, <laughs> a, a sentimental commercial. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Tearing up. So, yeah. so it's an emotion that you shouldn't be ashamed of. It gets kind of categorized as a female emotion, which is unfortunate. It just, it's a, it is a tightrope. It's a tough one. Aside from the work, you're dealing with all of that stuff, all that stuff. And it's very hard for females, I think still. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I also appreciate how much skill and empathy that it probably took to walk that tightrope in so many different rooms with so many different people for so long. That's a real art in and of itself. Yeah. It's a very important part of the job. I've done this work for so long. And I think that we always have room for improvement. And I think as, you know, there's always ways to help people coming up behind you, which is incredibly important. And now my new, my new goal for my career is to be even more sensitive and helpful to the people, especially the women on my crew. Not because they're women, but, you know, we understand each other better. I'm not saying a woman is better than a man in any way. No, I'm with you. You know, I raised two kids doing this. And I know how hard it is to be a working mom. And I think that we were very often told, don't even go there. You don't even have to say, don't say that you may be distracted because you need to get home to be the tooth fairy that night. Keep it all really professional. And I think that 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 is something that the film business especially can improve upon. Even calling that professional, like I think that's even kind of toxic to say that for you to be a full spectrum human who also has concerns with your children and might need to let the emotion go through you rather than stuffing it back down is unprofessional. I know that I know where it comes from and I know why it's there and why we use that word, but that's even like the language we use around being a a very professional, but also full spectrum human is important. Yeah, it's very important. And I think that's something that we're just starting to get awareness at. I think so too. My daughter works as my assistant now 
a lot of times. And she was on Avatar and she had her first child during the making of the movie. And when she wanted to come back to work, we just decided that we had our own little daycare. <laughs> so the Perfect. baby would, the baby came to the office and I, and I didn't ask permission. No, good. Cause you're the boss at that point. <laughs> yeah, I was the boss of my, my department and people were very happily bringing their dogs to work. And I'm like, this isn't that much different. So we established a little daycare and it was absolutely eye-opening and wonderful to see how this affected people in the workplace. I believe it. It was amazing. People would come to the office, like gently knock on the door and they would come in and hold the baby for three minutes, whatever it took. And it was like absolute therapy, absolute therapy. It calmed people down. It put people back in touch with sort of a, whatever your center is. It was beautiful. And what's really important, not the whatever's, you know, aggravating you in the moment, but yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was like therapy baby to the max. He's wonderful. (laughs) I love that story. And I'm so glad you shared it because I think it's an example of, first of all, it's, it's a very data driven example of how actual daycare in the workplace is a good thing. Yes. But it's also an example of like, we've gotten so far away from the village, but when you bring the village back in places wherever you can, it really does create a more harmonious ecosystem. It re- every time it really 100%, does. 100%. 100%. We've lost touch with that. You know, so it came back full force for me. And I think that's become a really important part of now who I am. When I work with people when I uh, on Avatar going working a lot in New Zealand, and really taking the time to get to know the people who worked for me, how they were feeling, like, how are you feeling today? What's going on? How are your parents? How are your siblings? You know, what are your challenges? Are you okay at work? Tell me about the work. How are you feeling about the project you're on at the moment? So it's been really helpful and it's something that I will uh, take with me moving forward. I love that. I'm so, so happy and touched to hear that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I do want to talk about your creative process because it is fascinating. You know, we can use Avatar The Way of Water as an example if you can sort of, I know it's been five years that you've been working on that (laughs) and even longer because you developed the costumes for Avatar. So the characters have been in development for a very long time. Yes. But your process includes world building, character development, ethnographic research, deep, deep well of hands-on technical dexterity with regard to craft and material knowledge and construction and enough holistic design experience to be able to artfully work with those people who are outside of your expertise, like sophisticated engineering, digitalization, plus needing to understand what the camera needs and what the actor needs and the dance of bodies and light and 
cameras in space in order to get what you need onto the story. And then motion capture, add that to the whole thing. It's like (laughs) such a huge bag of tricks. (laughs) I need you to pull it out one by one for me and talk me through it. Oh my gosh. It's so complicated. And obviously all my experience paid off one way or the other. And my biggest part of the experience was to say like, look, hey, you're, you're asked to do things that you've never done before. I barely know how to use a computer or I did. Now I'm very, I'm getting much more proficient at it understanding the technical world that it takes to make these movies, it'll blow your mind. It's completely new to most people. Most costume designers have not been allowed or invited into that world yet. And I think it's a whole new way of making a movie that we're going to increase our skill base as a group. And that's really important. And I'm one of the sort of pioneers of of this. It's on me to kind of help other people understand it too. But the, the design process is exactly the same of any movie, right? That you're taking a script, you're taking director's directive, and you're creating these characters. The luxury and the terror of having this, it be a fantasy world that you have to then make up. (laughs) Yes. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on that airstrip again with my sewing machine. I have no idea what I'm doing. So, (laughs) but... You know, the confidence that after having worked in the business for so long, you're like, I can do this. Not only can I do it, but I'm excited about doing it. And here's what I can bring to the table. And using all the people around me, all the technicians, asking questions. Don't be afraid to ask a question because you can't fake your way through. I don't understand what, you know, upfront continuity means. I do now, but (laughs) I didn't. So, you know, that's another language. Exactly. But the, the costume making... The, the designing, getting the approvals, the live action costumes were seemed like a cakewalk. At However, this point. I, I had to look, yeah, I did a lot of the props, I did the helmets, I did the face masks, I did all this technical stuff that I didn't know anything about. Again, have people help you, ask questions, rely on the expertise of others. It's like, how are we going to make a face mask that doesn't fog up? Let's work right. on that because it I didn't work. I was wondering, how did you do yeah. that? <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work in the first movie. And many times they take the face pipe out anyway because there's too many weird reflections because you're not actually on pa- you're not actually on Pandora, so the reflections have to be put in there. You know, you don't want to see the set. So right. <laughs> <laughs> but when we did have to put the masks on, we you know one of the technicians that I worked with, a really amazing guy at Weta Call, his name is Lance Hansen. He said, "Why don't we put some." fans in there. And so we rigged this whole system where they could have just little tiny fans blowing on their face, which kept the, the fog, the down. fog away. That's so. Yeah. Clever. It was amazing. You it didn't amazing. have to worry about the audio of the motor. They were of a very, fan very quiet. I mean, at first I'm like, what about that? What's going to happen? But a lot of times, again, it would be an action sequence or something where there wasn't that much dialogue. And we weren't necessarily always capturing the dialogue live anyway because of a million issues. I learned that. It was super fun and it really paid off ultimately. It did. I did notice a difference in the... Because I watched the two films back back to back recently just to get familiar with your work. I did notice a difference in the masks from, from the first one to the second one. They were much more substantial and hardy. And we also had to develop the dive masks, which I worked with a gentleman called John Garvin, who's a dive master. So he had all the connections. He was responsible for helping Jim build a submarine. So, you know, again, an expert in the field, go to them, say, what, how do we do this? Here's my design. How can you help me make this so the kid can actually dive down 30 feet and be able to breathe? Right. So it's actually functional. A hundred percent. Also looks the way we need it to look, which is not like an existing stock dive mask that you can buy because that means you're out of the fantasy. You're that's right. That's yeah. right. So you're at big five sporting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we had to stay within the language of the film and it was, it was really a challenge, very, very challenging and not noticeable in the movie particularly. Right. But you don't realize how many people put so much hard work into that. I think only somebody who knows how things get made starts to understand how many people it took and how much expertise went together that had to coalesce in a in a sort of beautiful coordination for something like that to get realized. It is quite astounding. I mean, because on top of that sort of sophisticated engineering and research and development of like new technology, 
There was also deep research into indigenous crafts. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That was just an amazing adventure to be welcomed into. Like the amount of research that one can do. And now with computers, I have 8 million books now on cultures all (laughs) over the world. And I'm like, are you ever going to look at these again? Probably because they're beautiful. But that deep dive that we as costume designers are tasked to do is extremely fun. It's very, very informative. And you learn so much on each and every job, even if you don't necessarily use it, it's there. It becomes part of the language that you're, you're going to eventually speak. So we researched all over the world, like, and mostly indigenous peoples, not just in the Polynesian kind of area, but all over. And, and, and I found a lot of truths in these people that they quite often were very ornamental in their clothing. That's one of the ways they express themselves. They have a very, very deep cultural umbrella that they identify with. They have rules that depict and demand what their jobs are or how they're, what their status is in terms of society. It's very, very sophisticated. They use, for the most part, what they have available in their environment to make their clothing. And they're quite decorative. It's also an art form, the way they express themselves. So these were all just like the best, like calling card, like, oh my God, I have, what could be better than that? It's like, it's everything wrapped up in one thing. Sort of settling with, with Polynesia because the planet of Pandora is very warm and Jim really liked the black wavy hair as opposed to the braids of our first clan. I was able to design the characters head to toe. So I did all the hair. I did all the hand, the props. I did all the jewel, everything. So as a designer, you're just taking up this amazing space in the movie. So that was really, really fun. And then we got to start making the costumes. We made the costumes for a bunch of reasons. One was for the digital artists that they had the perfect texture map to ascribe to in making that garment because they know how to draw a t-shirt. They did not know how to draw what I made for those costumes. Those costumes have, they're unique, they're bespoke, they're one of a kind. You don't know what that is and no computer has a brain enough to understand how those work. How heavy is it? How does it move? That can't be expressed in a rendering and then be believable on the film. It it has to come from an actual artifact that you hand built. That's right. And so it was like creating these, these artifacts. And that was where I just hunkered down in that workshop with my team there. And it was like having your own atelier, you know, you just, it's like, here's the design. Let's make it. How are we going to make it? You know, what's it made out of? So the designs would then sometimes change according to the materials that I wanted to use. Sometimes substantially, sometimes not very much at all. We used a lot of natural things. We were also had the ability to 3D print things when necessary that couldn't be carved. You know, I had carvers, I had weavers, I had macrame artists, beaters. I mean, it was amazing. What a dream to go to work around that all day. <laughs> it was an absolute dream to have people who were so skilled with their hands that anything you could dream up, you could figure out a way to make it. And sometimes we would start something and I'd go, no, uh-uh, this is not working. This is not, this is not right. And we had the luxury to start over. Yeah, you don't always have that. So that's nice that you did. And there was a couple of times where if we had had that kind of time restraint, it would have been really terrible. But <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you have that all the time in live action. At a point you're like, oh, I wish that dress was a little bit longer, but it wasn't. So you got to work with it. But luckily, we did have time to sort of finesse and change because the post-production part of making a movie like this is the lengthy part. And also, costumers are typically done by the time you get to post-production, right? So I think that's particularly fascinating that your role is not over at all because you're still tweaking the costumes. Yeah, give credit to Jim, who wanted to make sure that there was someone in charge of that. I was still the head of the department. I was going to lead it through the post-production. I was going to lead it with those artists. Those, you know, they're fantastic. They're amazing artists as well at an FX team, but they, they aren't costume makers. Right, right. So the ability to say, here's my thing. Look how amazing it looks on a mannequin. 
Now you got to do it and you got to do it really well. So we sat through what many, many hours of kind of virtual fittings where they would do their 3D modeling. They would start to make the garment. Sometimes we'd go off and do make a sort of a duplicate of it, not as extensive, but like, and then put it in the pool to see how it worked. Put it in front of a rigger fan to see how the wind blew it. Have someone do the action of the character. How would it react when they did that? So there's tons of footage also that we shot that informed the animators and the simulators. Yeah, it just gave credit. It gave the, the gravitas that the costume department has in this movie. It, the, the footprint of it is huge. Absolutely. And the, the very thing that you just described feels to me like the actual bridge slat by slat from the physical world to the virtual world. It's like so layered and so deep. We could talk about it forever, how complex it can be. You have also have the luxury, like if you made something and it's not the exact color that you decided you wanted, once you start seeing the virtual lighting and the action and the situation, which can change radically from what you shot in performance capture sometimes, that you're like, oh my gosh, I, okay, the top was purple, but now we should make it green. And that's easy. So you're still tinkering. You have this luxury of being able to tinker, tinker, tinker. I was also starting to design film three during the post of film two. Yeah, so that it got very complicated, but it, it helped inform my designs on film three. And I knew how far I could go. It's like, oh, yeah, when we started, they look at an, a, a power shell and go, how are we going to do that? Our computers can't do that. And it's like, yeah, you can. And they did. You know, so it's like your imagination can be endless because they can, when asked to, keep up with you. So that's beautiful, too, that you were in a position where you were able to carve the path for the next movie while you're making this movie. As an artist, seeing the finished film, does it give you great sort of gratification to have been able to follow all the way through? 100%. That's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Right. Because you're Mark. And I would always tell my team that my post-production work was for all of us. It was so important to hang in there, even when you said, oh my God, it's tedious it's not as much fun as making making things. And, but that was what I had to do. That was part of the job. And I had to uh, trumpet that work. I had to take it in there and I had to stick with it. Even when sometimes it would be like, well, we can't really afford to fix that. Okay, well, how are we going to fix it next time? And to observe in my own work where I needed to give them more clarity, maybe a design was possibly too complicated, but I could see what they can do and what they're not great at. I mean, the computers and the whole language that they speak and figure out ways to make it even more successful. Knowing that dance means you're going to be even more fluid in the next film. One of my biggest compliments was when the VFX supervisor, he said, well, you know, well, when you started, you didn't know anything, right? And I said, absolutely not. And he goes, you, no visual effects supervisor will ever be able to pull the wool over your eyes anymore because you got it. <laughs> you know all their awesome. tricks. Yes. You know, you know you know what they can do and you can call it on them with respect and work together as a secondary part of that costume team. That is a beautiful evolution I think of the film industry and I love a costumer at the table seeing all the way through. It's so important and we deserve to be there. Absolutely. Thank you and high fives for for being <laughs> such a pioneer. I want to ask you one more question before I let you go. I just appreciate your work, but I also want to just touch on you, the the human, for a second. I know you have a couple of daughters, and you've talked about how you're in the industry making sure that you're making the world kinder for the people who are coming up behind you and opening doors. So I really appreciate that. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, well... I think the task to be kinder, to be, to do all those things is, it's complicated. I think it takes some self-reflection to say, look back and say, when you didn't do those things very well, and to work on changing your ways, because it sounds very trite, I know, but when you see people, they see you back. And that's one of the main ways to take care of yourself, to know that you've done that human thing with even one other person that day, that it gives me such a sense of accomplishment and joy. And that's one of the things I will continue to try and do better each and every day. 
you know, I've raised two children. I have a grandchild now. The houses can be quite noisy. And when we went into lockdown and started working from home, which wasn't a dream, (laughs) not a dream at all, but you know, it had its perks, but you really have to be mindful of carving out that time for yourself. And I remember one day I got upset with my husband because I was folding laundry and he was trying to talk to me. And I'm like, can't you see I'm working? Because I was folding laundry, but my mind was designing something. So as women, I think we're also incredible multitaskers when asked where we can absolutely do that. And I said, you know, it's like, can't you see? And I'm like, of course you don't know, because everything gets so commingled. And and I think that to carve out those moments where you can have that quiet time, whatever you're doing, if you're taking a walk, driving in the car, folding laundry, cooking dinner, whatever it is, that your mind kind of be able to escape somewhere, which relaxes you. And I, I try to exercise, I do a lot of yoga, you know, all those, those, those good things that are good for you. This has been so fascinating and so informative. And I really appreciate you sharing your your whole life story with me. And honestly, I just really enjoy you as a creative and as a person. So thank you. Oh, my God. Well, thank you. I'm really glad that we had this time together. I think your, your questions are so thoughtful and really made me be more thoughtful. And so to give a framework to the like, when you say things, it actually makes them become more alive and real. I think I've really carved out with your help, you know, what some of the things I'm going to do moving forward. And I really thank you for that. Hopefully we'll get another chance to talk shop because um, I learned, I learned a lot and this was beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Deborah, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss anything. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.